0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to invite back John Lear, who is a retired airline captain and former CIA contract pilot with over 19,000 hours of flight time, over 11,000 in command of three or four engine jet transports, and has flown over 100 different types of aircraft in 60 different countries around the world. He retired in 2001 after more than 40 years of commercial flying. He's also the son of Learjet inventor Bill Lear, and John holds more FAA airman certificates than any other FAA certificate airman. This includes the airline transport pilot certificate with 23 type ratings, flight instructor, flight engineer, flight navigator, ground instructor, aircraft dispatcher, control tower operator, parachute rigger, and mechanic rated for both airframe and power plant. He flew for the CIA in Southeast Asia between 1972 and 1973. He logged 560 missions, of which over half were combat. He also flew contract missions in Eastern Europe, the Middle East, and Africa between 1977 and 1982. And during the last 17 years of his career, John has worked for several passenger and cargo airlines as a captain, Czech airman and instructor, and he was certificated by the FAA as a North Atlantic Navigation Check Airman. He has extensive experience as a command pilot and instructor in the Boeing 707, Douglas DC-8, and Lockheed L-1011. John happens to hold 17 world records, including Speed Around the World in a Learjet Jet Model 24 set in 1966, and was presented the PATCO, Professional Air Traffic Controllers Association Award for Outstanding Airmanship in 1968. He's also a father of four children, four grandchildren, and lives with his wife of 39 years in Las Vegas. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome John Lear back to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning. morning, Kim. I invited you back. There's so much to discuss. And even after our interview, I went and listened to it again and again and again. And I put myself in the position of not the interviewer, not the person in dialogue with you formally, but the people that are listening. And I have questions and also new areas of discussion to open up with you. Thank you for being here again.
1: Great.
0: In the first interview, you spoke very definitively about 9-11, about your experience flying, and what really is in the realm of reality relative to what a pilot could do in those type of airplanes. And I listened very carefully. I also listened to you talk about the advanced holographic technology And how it could be used in this type of an event. And then I looked at the patents and I went back to your site and saw that you had laid out very carefully the detail that this has been around for a long time. So I could accept that. There's a couple of things that came to my mind, though, that were difficult to accept. And I wanted to talk to you about the people that called in, saying goodbye to their family members, supposedly called in from these airplanes. How are these voices calling in their family members? That's the part I don't get.
1: Uh, those were all fake calls. None of those calls actually happened.
0: You mean family members really didn't get calls?
1: No, no. The one where they made the movie out of it, uh, Todd Beamer says, let's roll. That was all fake.
0: What about his wife? Wasn't uh, she the one that said that that happened?
1: He was with her, and they don't hit her too hard on what the truth is. They just go on, and she still thinks it was him. But you can't get away from the fact that when she first picked up the phone, he says, hi, Mom, it's Todd Beamer, your son. You recognize me, don't you? I mean, come on.
0: I didn't know that.
1: You have to read some of the text to realize what a massive scam it was. There were no airplanes. No airplanes crashed into the World Trade Center. No airplane crashed into the Pentagon. No airplane crashed at Shanksville, and I see that from having been a crash investigator in several instances for uh, some of the companies that I worked for. And the pictures that I see will start out with Shanksville because that's
0: that was really obvious. There was that nothing. Was really obvious. Yeah, there that was like a joke. Yeah.
1: An airplane can't bury itself in the ground. I don't care whether it's an old mining pit or soft dirt. It it just cannot happen. Then the uh, Pentagon. I always ask people to Google April Gallup. That's G A L L O P. Her desk was 40 feet from the hole that the explosion made. There was no missile. There was no drone. There was no airplane, there was no A3, there was no Boeing 757. As a matter of fact, she saw nothing except she heard the explosion and some of the ceilings started to crack, so she took her six-month-old son, who was in his car seat below her desk, and walked the 40 feet over to the hole, and she crawled up and out of the hole and walked over to the grass for triage. Triage is where doctors see what you need as far as surgery or pain or anything like that, and she wasn't too badly damaged. But she states that she smelled no fuel, no kerosene, no JP7, no gasoline. All she smelled was cordite, hand-type explosives that they'd use.
0: I could totally get that. I could totally get the part about Shanksville. The Pentagon, there was no plane. I could even get that. Our eyes can deceive us. But what about people hearing planes and seeing something moving? That's also part of holographic technology, even the sound?
1: Yes. The holograph technology can produce moving objects with sound and heat and light and noise. And I'm not saying that they were holographic projections, because out of the 41 videos that we have collected, they come in at different angles. So I don't know what happened there, but I do know that no airplane crashed into the World Trade Center, because between the two 767s, there should have been around 6 million parts all stamped with the Parts Manufacturing Authority and a part number from Boeing. And they didn't find one single part. And they didn't find uh, one single voice recorder or one single flight recorder. I mean, it's just impossible. It just can't happen. There's been no aviation accident where the flight recorder and voice recorder have not been found they're built too strongly and they're built into the tail which is usually the last part of the airplane to get to the accident and usually survives fairly well the fuel blew up and what they used is some kind of explosive that was the wrong color it should have been more yellowish as far as the destruction of the world trade center The Navy has 24 orbiting weaponized satellites, and each has a different method of destruction. And the method they used for the World Trade Center was what they called molecular disassociation.
0: Is that a direct energy weapon type of technology?
1: Yes, it's like a direct energy, but what it does is it disassociates material into its basic components so that all you have is dust. And that's why they couldn't find very much steel or very much concrete. All they could find was dust. It was all disintegrated. They found no desks, no phones, no filing cabinets, no doors, no hinges, no not, nothing like that. All there was was about one-story level of metal left out of a 110-story building. These weapons that we have are very, very powerful. Now, the first time they tried it was at the Mira building in Oklahoma City, and that was a test run for molecular disassociation. Then the World Trade Center, they used it at full power, And what they didn't know and what they found out was the explosion or the reaction that they're causing is non-self quenching, which means when it's done exploding, it's not done. It doesn't stop. So that's why after 10 years, you don't see any buildings at ground zero, because every time they pour concrete or put any steel there, it disintegrates. The last I heard a couple weeks ago was they were going to put a park right at ground zero because it can't build anything there. It just keeps disintegrating. And the buildings that are close by, if you take a walk downtown, I just saw some pictures yesterday, you can see the steel corroding, starting to fall apart because this molecular disassociation is continuing and they've really got themselves into a fix here by something they cannot fix.
0: Would it be safe to say that the frequency of that area, that geographic area, has been marred for some time now?
1: The soil has, yeah. The
0: soil, the, the air, the everything. Yeah. You are part of Pilots for 9-11 Truth. At pilotsfor911truth.org, you shared in the first segment we did together that you had filed a, what's it called?
1: Quit Am Complaint, complaint. filed by Morgan Reynolds, Jerry Leapard, and had nothing to do with Pilots for Truth for 9-11. It was completely separate. Morgan Reynolds was an economic advisor for the Bush administration, and he left in uh, 2001 and got interested in the fake attack called 9-11, and he is now the world's most informed authority on the attack. And what he did was he filed a quidam complaint A quit-and-complaint is you're complaining that somebody billed or charged the government and got paid for information that was not true. There was approximately 24 companies most of them located in New Mexico, where uh, all of the direct energy weapons are being made and being used and being designed. And he filed a suit against those 23 companies. And when Morgan heard me on the radio once, he emailed me and said, Would you be willing to attach an affidavit? on what you were talking about on the airplanes and i said certainly and i submitted a 15 page affidavit to the new york supreme district court i said mainly it was impossible for an airplane to travel 560 miles an hour The Boeing 767 is limited to 360 knots, which is about 410 miles an hour, and that's it. You cannot go any faster. No matter how much thrust you have, you can't make it go faster because of the drag that is created. It takes several pages to explain technically and aerodynamically how that works. But I finally got it through everybody's head when I was talking about and I referred them to the Bureau of Naval Aeronautics manual when they teach their aviators about aerodynamics. They show these charts and graphs and how that works. In other words, you just cannot add power and go faster because the faster you go, the more drag you get and it takes a tremendous amount of power to even get an extra 100 miles an hour. I mean, they don't even build an engine that big that they could have put on the Boeing 767 to go that fast. And there was no reason to go that fast. Uh, It was just one of those things that they put out that they didn't think anybody would argue about. But uh, when I read that the three different people that were measuring the speed, the FAA, and two or three other places that it was around 560 miles an hour, it's impossible. It cannot happen. The airplane cannot go that fast.
0: That's really chilling. And I know that you said this in our first dialogue together. Where was NORAD that day? I don't get it.
1: NORAD is in Colorado City, Colorado, in the mountain there.
0: Right, but where were they that day in New York? I thought that if anything enters the airspace... Well, I guess if what you're saying is that this thing was done through a direct energy weapon and holographic technology, then nothing did enter the airspace.
1: Nothing did enter the airspace because they were controlling everything. They kept the phone lines busy to NORAD so that NORAD couldn't get any calls to verify it to launch any airplanes. Whoever the perps were, they just kept the lines busy at NORAD so that NORAD couldn't get any information. The only people that had information were the FAA controllers. Now, the FAA controllers at New York Center, which is there uh, on Long Island, got together that afternoon about 2 o'clock, and there was about 10 of them. And they sat around a table with a tape recorder, a little cassette tape recorder, and each one described exactly what he saw or didn't see and what his opinion was going on. A couple of days after that, somebody high in the administration, and I don't have the name of who it was, ordered them to physically turn over the tape, and it was cut into little teeny shreds. We will never hear what the uh, controllers thought or said or did on 9-11, specifically because they don't want anybody to know that the whole thing was just a fake. And it was a fake because we needed another war. We needed to go into Afghanistan, and so we needed an enemy in Afghanistan. So we made Osama bin Laden the enemy. And we were going to go in and we were going to give Afghanistan democracy and we were going to help the women get educated and we were going to do all this and that. But what we really wanted to do was get control of the Hindu Kush and the Hindu Kush is several provinces in North Afghanistan which are the exact altitude, exact temperature, exact rainfall and exact weather for growing uh, opium poppies. And there's hundreds of thousands of acres that we now grow, we harvest, sell and distribute. And that money is used for black projects. That is good for the people who are running the country because they don't want to have to go to Congress on bended knee and ask for money because Congress always wants to know what the money is for and they don't want to tell them. It's a secret. They're running the country, not Congress.
0: I heard that Sandia has a voice morphing technology that they created years ago. Is this true? Yeah, we can do
1: that. That's scary. They think it's safe to take a sample of yours or my voice and then just say anything they want and it will sound just exactly like you. We have lots of little technology advances like that. For instance, in the Navy, if you elect, you can get a uh, vision operation to your eyes that will improve your vision by 200%. And the same thing with your hearing. You can hear between 150% and 200% better than normally. And it's a voluntary program, but it is available. Wow, And our technology is so far ahead that you can't argue with anybody about how 9-11 was done because they just come back and they say, no, you can't do that. So uh, when you talk to somebody about holographic technology, they can only think in terms of what they know. And what they know is that it has to be a dark room and you have to have something to project the holographic image against, you know, like a screen or something. And they cannot get it through their thick heads. The technology is so advanced that they don't need that anymore. They can project a holographic image of a flying airplane into thin air. They don't need a backdrop or a screen or anything like that. And it's really tough when getting into arguments with people because they no, 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 that's not possible because they're unable to think of how it could be done. But the fact is it's, it's none of their business. It's a secret, and it's a uh, technology advance that's way away, far and away what they're uh, used to or, or, or anything they know about.
0: I think when Ben Rich talked about how we have the capability to go to the stars, that told us a lot about the level of what we have that we don't have access to.
1: Well, what he actually said was, we have the technology to take ET home. But what he didn't say is we can use the technology to take ET home because I don't think we can get through the Van Allen belt. Now, for years, I thought that we had been to the moon in 1962 and to Mars in 1966. That came from one of my informants. But lately, I've changed my mind, which I'm allowed to do every night at midnight. (laughs) I hope so. I don't think we're on the moon. Now, it's possible we are. But there's a reason. First of all, we never went to the moon in the first place. Apollo was a sham. It was a series of recordings. It was a series of all what practicing they did put together to seem like six different missions. But there was so much evidence now that anybody that believes that we went to the moon are just not informed. The biggest thing is the fact that the moon's gravity is 70% of that of Earth's, not one-sixth as most Physicists will tell you, and the problem with that is Newton's second law is incorrect. Kepler's third law is correct. And when you use Kepler's third law, you can figure out that the moon's gravity is 70% of Earth. The second way of proving it is to use the bully newton law of inverse square where all you need is distance and size and the neutral point to figure out the difference in gravity between the Earth and the Moon. You don't need to use density. Now, when you're figuring that out with Newton's second law, you're using density, and it's just a guess, and by golly, what the density is. Now, they tell us that the Moon's density is 3.34 centimeters cubed, And they tell us that the Earth is 5.5 centimeters cubed, and they use those as finite or true densities to figure out the gravitational force or the gravitational pull of the Earth against the moon. But both of those are wrong. The assumptions for density is wrong, and the way of figuring it out is wrong.
0: When you spoke about this in the first segment that we did, you really went through the thoroughly the 9-11. I want to go back to one part. What happened to the planes of the people who supposedly took off on a plane? Where did those people go?
1: Most of them were government employees. They're hidden somewhere, have changed lifestyles, or under different names, do different things, and still work for the government. There are several people who actually were passengers who were killed somehow, but we don't know how. But there weren't that many. There weren't 300 people killed in, the, in those airplane crashes. Very few. And I would say maybe less than 10 people were killed, or I should say murdered, when 9 11 happened. The ones that really got the short end were the people in the Twin Towers trying to get out. And I don't know what that real number is. It's supposedly up there about 2,800, but uh, we don't know. What we do know is that anybody that complains just goes to the government, and the government gives them a couple million dollars and has them sign a piece of paper that says that they will never discuss this with anybody for any reason forever as long as they live. That's why we can't get any information out of those guys.
0: Wow. Wow. That right there tells us that there's something amiss, that something is completely off with the whole event. Because why would the government tell those people, we will give you X number of million dollars you're never to discuss this? Again, it's just basically silencing people and paying them no, because off. People
1: are going to say, no, I was in the airplane that crashed, you know, or I didn't have relatives that, that crashed. They're still around.
0: Got it. When we spoke last about the Van Allen Belt, I went and I read an article by NASA that said that the Van Allen belt, you can get through it and it's no big deal, basically. So what is the story? What is the truth about this?
1: It's much more dangerous than people are led to believe that uh, you would need two meters of solid lead to protect you from the radiation from the Van Allen belt. We have nothing that could do that. Now, we have uh, mechanical objects that we have landed on the moon and to take pictures and stuff like that that can get through the van allen belt and can be protected but you cannot protect astronauts from that kind of radiation it would kill them right away
0: nasa's information then to the public is completely false
1: yeah, I heard an interesting thing here one day as somebody was talking with a guy from NASA and the guy from NASA says, you know, it's not that we lied about a few things here and there. We lied about everything. I mean, <laughs> nothing they said was true. Nothing they have said was true. Everything they've said about the planet, the universe, the earth, everything is fake.
0: Let's talk about Perry Spolter. Yeah. Talk about her book.
1: I haven't checked with her lately. She lost her son here about six months ago, and she was not feeling too hot. The next book she was going to write was going to be On the Moon, and I think I gave her a little too much information to maybe go ahead and tackle it because there's a website run by some idiot named Jay, Oh, space.com. And uh, we got into an argument about what the gravity of the moon would be using the Bully-Aldis-Newton law of inverse square. And what mainstream science comes back with is you can't use that because uh, it's a three-body problem and it's far too complicated. And by three bodies, they mean Earth, Moon, and Sun. Well, Perry is... A genius at mathematics. So she took the day that Apollo 11 allegedly landed on the moon and figured out the gravity, figuring it out, assuming a three body problem, sun, earth, and moon, and figured out that if they had landed that day, the gravity of the moon would have been 70%, wow. which it is. That's why it has an atmosphere. Its atmosphere is about equal to 18,000 feet on Earth. If you want to go to the moon, you have to go through a week's decompression, just like if you want to climb Mount Everest, you have to take it in 5,000 foot increments and stay a week or two to get your lungs and system accustomed to that lower pressure of air. You couldn't start one day and just walk right up. It's a two or three, three or four week program where you take 5,000 feet at a time and go back and forth and get your lungs uh, and your system uh, accustomed to that. Same thing with the moon. So then when you're adjusted, then you can go to the moon and you don't need any space helmet or anything like that. You could just go out there and breathe normally.
0: Your interest in extraterrestrial life began in 1985 with Jimmy Doolittle talking To your mom, right? About MJ-12.
1: No, my interest began when I read Bud Hopkins' book, Missing Time. And then it was increased when Bill Moore and Jamie Chandra came out with the alleged Majestic 12 papers. And I wanted to find out whether Majestic 12 was true, because nobody had heard that it was true, and nobody had heard of Majestic 12. And so I got my mom who lived in Reno to call General Doolittle, who was then retired and living in Carmel Valley in in California and were very good friends and had been good friends for, for years and years and years and years. And of course, Jimmy Doolittle's wife had passed away several years before and he was always delighted to hear from my mom. And so I decided that the only way I was going to get the bottom of this thing was find out what Doolittle had to say about it, because he was in it up to his ears. He was not an MJ-12 himself, but he did a lot of work for MJ-12, and he knew a lot about the saucer deal. So I got her to call him one morning and talk a little little short How's things, how's the weather and everything? And then she said, you know, Jimmy, uh, John's gotten himself into something that I'm not sure is good, but I wanted to know for from you, is Majestic 12 real? And he said, yes, Moy, it is, but I can't tell you anything about it. So that was it for me. I was on my way. If he said it was true, then that meant that the papers that Bill Moore had, all oh, they may have been faked. They contain true information and were true, and so that's when I took my famous truck ride and I went to uh, Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, and just drove around talking with different people, different military people, different civilians. Went to different leads. Uh, went to Dulcie and did a lot of research which people don't do these days. All they do is go to the Internet. And if it's not on the Internet, they don't know anything about it. Very few people read books these days. They'll look on the Internet and get a summary of it rather than read the book. The Internet essentially dumbs everybody down because the Internet is very controlled about what goes out. One of the things I'm proud of on the Internet Wikipedia refuses to print my name. Now, they put everybody else's name on there, Bob Lazar, all the other UFO researchers, but they will not put mine or any of my background. It's really interesting. I consider it an honor not to be on Wikipedia because it shows that somebody has a grudge and that somebody is the government.
0: Wikipedia is very controlled. They've got the entire global warming climate agenda on there. If anybody says anything different or cites anything different, it's immediately removed. I don't know why people take it as being a realistic thing anyway. Seriously. Oh, uh-huh. You know how all things lead to Rome? <laughs> yeah. The Naval Underwater Warfare Center in Hot Door, Nevada Division. What is that?
1: That's a submarine docking or what they call, they call them pens. The Pacific Ocean underlies most of the United States. And uh, what we do is at certain places we drill down and put elevators, huge elevators, down to the level of the Pacific. And then we bring the elevators, one of the entrance, two of the entrances I know is one is in San Diego and one is in Monterey Bay just north of Fort Ord. They can go under California and right under Hawthorne, Nevada. There's a huge submarine pen. I think there's room for a hundred submarines. And the reason it's there is because in Hawthorne, Nevada, just across the street from the Naval Warfare Training Center, is the weapons and munitions manufacturing company, and I forget the name, but but they're the ones to make all the special weapons and explosives and ammunition that the Navy needs. And they don't have to transport it on a highway and make it obvious what they're doing. All they have to do is drive across the street. You cross a little train track when you're going from Las Vegas to Reno, and that little train pulls a load of munitions and bullets and missiles and stuff and tows it across to where the elevator is, and they load it into the elevator, and it goes down 4,300 feet to the level of the uh, Pacific Ocean. Then it's loaded on the submarines and carefully backed away, carefully installed and ready for weapon use. And then the uh, submarine then leaves, and goes back out the way they came in near Monterey Bay, and then are on their way. Now, there's many elevators, and there's many bases around the United States. One of the biggest is in Memphis, Tennessee, and of course the way they get up there is using the Mississippi River. St. Louis, Missouri is where they do a lot of technical research on atomic nuclear uh, submarines, and so uh, there's a secret place in st louis which you go down these set of stairs and open the door and there's a united states nuclear submarine floating right there and how did it get into the middle of the united states well it came through the gulf of mexico up the mississippi river and parked in st louis there's other bases there's one at lake Tahoe. And I don't know about that one, except a Navy commander friend of mine made the comment one day that he's going up to Lake Tahoe. And I said, what are you going to do up there? He says, oh, we got a big secret meeting going on. And I said, well, why at Tahoe? He says, well, that's where one of our secret bases is. So there may be an elevator there. or There may be an elevator at Pyramid Lake. There's something happening at China Lake, California. China Lake is a Navy weapons testing base, and people have seen nuclear submarines floating around specially constructed pens. So how they get to that level, which I believe is only about fourteen, fifteen hundred 1,500 feet, how they get to that level, I don't know.
0: The Navy submarine base, there's a new battleship that's computerized called Fleet 21. Do you know much about that?
1: It's a battleship that is completely computer-operated. There's not one single person on the battleship. It's serviced completely by computers. And on the fantail or the back of the boat, there's a large landing area where, if it needs to be serviced, there's a crew of six or nine technicians that can go on there and fix anything that needs to be fixed in those computers And then they take off and leave it, and then Fleet 21 goes on its mission. I'm not sure how many we have now, but I know that two and a half years ago, they were doing sea trials down there at Coronado, south of San Diego. So it should be fully operational. And we have another real interesting boat. It's called a Fast Attack Sub, and it uses a fusion reactor. Now, people say... I mean, that's in the future. We can't even make one on the ground, and that's not true. We've got fusion reactors, uh, engines that are extremely small. We can use them for all... under the sea and letting the water in, becoming accustomed to the pressure, and then leaving the submarine, going out and doing their job, and then coming back, getting in the submarine and repressurizing and going on their merry way. The advantage of these fast attack subs is they're really fast. They go about 125 knots. Usually, when you're measuring the speed of a boat, I think the formula is one over the square root of the waterline, line, oh, 1.34 times the square root of the waterline of the vessel. And so, if you take a vessel that's 1,000 feet long, <clears throat> its maximum speed would be like 43 knots. Now, most of the carriers that we have They talk in terms of maximum speeds of 45 to 50 knots, where, in fact, even before we had fusion reactor engines, we could get those things up to 95 knots by using reactors. Uh, I think the enterprise had five nuclear reactors would push them through the water. And what they did in those days is they had a special skin that when it was charged it would push the water about 10 centimeters away from the hull and essentially would have no drag. And so you're just pushing it through air and you're not limited. I mean, the thing is just like an airplane sailing through the sea and it could go 95 knots. The ones we've got now even go faster. The Ronald Reagan carrier, I think, goes uh, pretty fast probably well over 100 knots. It's kept secret from most of the personnel on the boat by saying, by telling everybody, they're confined to lower decks because of a possible bad weather, and they don't want anybody swept off the deck, so everything is sealed towards the deck so that nobody can get up there and see how fast they're really going. Navy is a complete control Of the uh, 24 weaponized orbiting satellites, they have two naval command satellites that they use to operate these weapons. I don't know how many each one holds, but there are two of them. We've got the International Space Station, plus two Navy command satellites, plus 24 weapon satellites. So your next question is going to be, holy smoke, where does all the food come from? (laughs) Well, the food comes mainly from rockets that are sent up, and they're full of fruit and canned vegetables and food like that. Every time the shuttle goes up, we're told when it takes off that they weren't able to get the exact inclination right. So it was going to take them three days to catch up with the International Space Station because they were just a little bit off course. And it would take them three days to make those slight corrections to get into the position to dock with the International Space Station. But, of course, we found out that was baloney. What they were doing is using those three days to unload half their cargo to the different space stations. Half of them were unloaded and fed going up, half fed and loaded going down. Now, what happens here is... That every time a shuttle is launched, we find out that the Russians have launched two of their rockets that are sitting there at the International Space Station with food and supplies ready to be put into the space shuttle. When uh, the last half of its cargo, now half of its cargo is food and supplies, and half is for some whatever mission they got going on in the International Space Station. But then when that's unloaded, they've got the whole thing completely empty, and that's when they start putting all the stuff that the Russians got food, vegetables, material, mechanics, avionics, equipment, all kinds of stuff they load that up, and then when they undock, From the International Space Station. It should take them 54 minutes from undock to landing at Cape Kennedy. But surprise, surprise, it always seems to take two and a half days. I've been in arguments with these guys. These idiots on the website, one is Jim Oberg and the other is Jay Reynolds, I think his name is. But anyway, when you're arguing with them, they say, well, what do you do for two days? And they say, well, we have uh, union rules. We have to have two rest periods, two consecutive rest periods. We have to exercise. He says, actually, we're not slave drivers. We want to have a little fun before we go down which is, of course, complete baloney. What they're doing is, when they undock, they're now going to the satellites that they missed going up, and they're taking all the food that was delivered by the Russians and their two rockets and distributing it as they go back down the line. Now, when the last shuttle is retired here in the next year, we have got enough man-rated rockets to be able to handle that. Many people think that the only way we have of getting into space is a space shuttle. But in fact, there are four other rockets that are man-rated that operate every day. People are unaware that we have 24 major launch sites around the world that we use all the time. They can launch things as big as a Saturn V. The new places they got is Wake Island. One is Johnston Island. We've got something going on at Midway. They've got something going on down at Christmas Island. Of course, there's a huge facility down at Antarctica, but I don't know what they're doing down there. But they've got places all over the place to launch our man-rated vehicles, and also they have Sea Launch. Now, Sea Launch is a boat, a large boat that can launch a rocket, and the rocket can go up to supply satellites, that have personnel on them that need supplying. The Navy is just about to launch their own sea launch, and uh, that should be in the next couple of months or so. They don't want to be left behind, so they started working on it, trying to get some some pictures of it, but I haven't got any yet. They're getting pretty secretive. I had some friends come over that were very, very knowledgeable. Uh, One was DOD, we didn't ask him for any information that they was not allowed to talk to us about, but we said on a scale of one to a thousand, one being that we didn't know anything about what the secret government was doing, and 1,000 being we knew everything that the government was doing, where would the average American be? And uh, we figured out it would be (laughs) 0.5.
0: Wow, that's profound.
1: And we put ourselves at 0.7. Wow. So we knew a little bit more than they think. But just lately, of course, my interest has been in the moon. And I've just gotten some fantastic pictures of buildings and spaceports on the moon. And I'm passing them around. They're on uh, open minds on the internet, and they're also on the Living Moon, thelivingmoon.com. And what I did was, uh, about 12 years ago, I happened to be browsing through that the bookstore in Portland. What What's the name of that big bookstore? Do you remember?
0: Powell's. Powell's.
1: So I got to a shelf, and it was full of old NASA publications. And I just, I got a, a little tray... And I put every book on that tray, every book that they had and bought them, just on speculation. And it turns out it has been a godsend because all of those books contain pictures that were published by NASA pre-1970. Now, anything pre-1970, they didn't airbrush very good. It's only after 1970 that they really were careful with airbrushing uh, houses and buildings and cities and stuff out of pictures. But those pre-1970 ones are the ones where I'm getting a lot lot of good stuff. And that, as I say, that can be seen on thelivingmoon.com, which is not my website. It belongs to Ron Schmidt, but it's one that I contribute to.
0: Can we talk a little bit about the doomsday seed vault in the Arctic?
1: I don't know. All that doomsday stuff is baloney. Nothing's going to happen in 2012.
0: Right. I remember you saying that. Here's the thing. The doomsday seed vault really does exist. So obviously, there is a purpose to have seeds in the event something happens, period, which doesn't necessarily have to do with Planet X or Planet Y or whatever. It is there. I just wondered why it happens to be in that location. I'm very interested in Antarctica, and I know that Ron Schmidt, you had shared, really is knowledgeable about Antarctica, and I was wondering if you are. No. Oh,
1: I hand everything over to uh, Ron Schmidt on Antarctica because I've just got too many other interests going on, and he is really up on Antarctica.
0: Project Red Sox regarding nuking the moon. Can you talk about that?
1: I don't know anything about it, but we certainly aren't going to nuke the moon. There's a million people that live up there, and I'm sure they'd be pretty pissed off. I used to think that all the towns were on the far side of the moon, but not all of them are. There's plenty on the near side. You just have to know how to look, and they also hide cities with holography. In the thelivingmoon.com, we've got an excellent photo of uh, Endymion, A friend of mine was looking one morning when they had the uh, holographic technology turned off, and uh, he saw what was there, a lot of buildings. And so we put those photos side by side and show you what they were cloaking there. There's another city called Batavius B., got a great picture of it all lit up and then a picture that if you just went out with your telescope and pointed at Patavius B, you wouldn't see anything but just ground and uh, mountains.
0: Have we been to Mars?
1: I don't know. You know, I used to think that we were, and we had this yo-yo that came out of Livermore Laboratories. His name was Deacon or something like that. And uh, he said that he would go to Mars in a jump room. And a jump room was like an elevator. You just press the button, the doors would open, go in, the doors would close. And then immediately they would open again, and you'd be on Mars. We asked him, you know, what he did most of the time he was on there, on Mars. And uh, he said, play ping pong. We asked him if he ever got to go to the surface. And he said, no. We think he's pretty much of a disinformation agent, just like this new guy, Ed Fouché, who has surfaced. And the way you tell whether somebody is full of disinformation is there's four things that the government doesn't really want you to know about. And one is John Lear, the other is Bob Lazar, the other is the F-19 and the other is Aurora. So when Ed Fouché came out on with those videotapes and started knocking me and Bob and Aurora and not even mentioning the F-19, although he was supposedly telling us all the real good secret stuff, he didn't even mention the F-19. So he's a, definitely a disinformation artist. Let's
0: talk about the F-19.
1: The F-19 was an airplane that was built at the same time as the F-117A. As a matter of fact, the 117 a was a cover for the F-19. The F-19 was a batwing, but it used the same engine, same gear, and a lot of the stuff that was ordered for the uh, F-117A could be used on the F-19. And that's how they got away with producing that aircraft at Lockheed without having to go through Congress. But the F-19 was a really slick-looking airplane. I think I've got a picture of it posted on the uh, It It's maybe used on carriers. They made 64 of them. My sources of information were four people. Number one, a person who worked on the assembly line and actually uh, put the wings on it. The second source was a Navy SEAL who was standing on the deck at night and watched one of them being launched. And he didn't know what it was until he got to my house. I showed him a picture of it and he said, yeah, that's the thing that was taken off. And the third source was a friend of mine who was a high Lockheed executive and. And I have a place where I keep that picture of the F-19. It's a picture of a model, not the airplane itself, but a model. And uh, he pointed to that picture, and he says, Hey, there's the airplane that uh, General Bond was killed in. And he was right on that. General Bond was not killed in an enemy 23. He was killed in an F-19, and the Navy was the one that killed him.
0: The Navy accidentally brought down one of the airplanes. Was it Pan Am?
1: Yeah, TWA Flight 800. What they were doing is they were using a range that extended from uh, along the coast of Long Island. And a drone would be launched, and they had a missile that they were practicing with, and it it wasn't loaded. It didn't have a warhead on it, but it, it was a missile. And what happened is the TWA-800 had been cleared to climb. Out of JFK, they were headed for Newfoundland uh, to come over to Europe. And about the same time, a missile f- had been fired from the submarine to uh, hit the drone. Well, for some reason, unlucky reason, the missile had a temporary, and we're talking a hundredth of a second, loss of power and uh, when it reacquired the power, it reacquired a different target. The different target was TWA 800, and it hit the airplane, remember it was not an explosive, and uh, it hit just forward of where the wings uh, attached to the forward fuselage, and it went through the aft part of the first-class windows and out the other side, and caused the airplane to break in half. When it crashed, all access to the airplane was cut off, and the Navy SEALs went in there the next day and recovered anything that could possibly tie the crash to the Navy, because that would have been the fifth commercial flight they had shot down. Now, the first one, uh, was in 1963 when they shot down an uh, American Constellation plane headed for Vietnam over uh, Guam. And somebody was using for for target practice. And uh, somebody had accidentally put some live rounds in there. And they shot it down. I think they had 150 servicemen on it. And then um, there was another one the Navy shot down up near... Um, the Sea of Japan, then there was the one in Iran, in the Persian Gulf that they shot down, and then there was uh, TW-800. So that makes the Navy a nautical ace for having shot down five airliners.
0: It seems as if the air, the land, and the sea don't belong to us at all.
1: No, in more ways than one. The ETs own all that stuff. We just get to use the stuff that they let us use.
0: Let's talk about the ETs. Did you want to talk about Aurora first?
1: Well, the thing that irritates Lockheed is Aurora was a Mach 12 airplane. It was supposed to be a secret, and it got accidentally released. Uh, The um, Aurora part of it got released in a budget request, and Lockheed has spent the last 20 years claiming that it wasn't an airplane, that it was just a series of projects, and, you know, they've been trying to cover it up forever. But the fact is they did make at least five of them, and I think they canceled the project. But it flew Mach 12 at 250,000 feet, and it was a highly advanced jet. Now, I don't think it exists anymore, but... uh, It did exist at one time because my friend Bob Lazar saw it one morning when he was getting out of the Boeing 737 that he flew up to Groom Lake with. And when he got out of the airplane, he looked to his right, and it was sitting there, and he could see directly from behind it. He could see the tailpipes. He didn't get a side view of it, but he did get a back view of it.
0: The Billy Meyer case which has been going on for years and years and years. I noticed on your site, you agree that it's a real case. It's a real phenomenon. The
1: Billy Meyer case, there's no question it was a good case. Here's a one-armed farmer who got some spectacular shots. And one of the promoters of the people who stood behind Billy Myers was this guy, Michael Malin. And Michael Malin was given exclusivity of all the Mars pictures that came down from all the Mars orbiters. Now, you wonder, well, now, how could they give a civilian company authority on what they're going to release and what they're not? So, I don't know how the inside, outside of that works, but... Anyway, that's the way it worked out. And the only catch was that Dr. Malin was a pro-Billy Meyer, and they didn't want a guy that was that knowledgeable in all kinds of technical fields promoting the Billy Meyer case. They want the, guy, the Billy Meyer case to be a fraudulent old man trying to make a few bucks out of some fake flying saucers. But uh, there certainly are a lot of people they don't believe the Billy Miller case, but in fact it is a true flying saucer case.
0: I definitely accept that it's a true flying saucer case. The thing I have difficulty with is the prophecies from. I've done maybe three hundred hours on this whole thing about climate and global warming and these prophecies, some of them may be true, but some of them are completely false. That's the problem I have with it. It's the prophecy-type thing that's being transmitted to us from him through his spokesperson. That's where I have difficulty.
1: Yeah, that's all baloney. And if we were to sit down and talk with Billy, he would probably not back that up because the prophecy stuff has been changed over and over and over, and he's been slammed for the weird stuff he's come up with. It's just a scam. It's not going to happen. It's just like all prophecies. They're going to say, oh, the world's going to end on, you know, the, the October 25th. It's gone forever, you know, and then when it doesn't go so on October 25th, they say, well, you know, maybe a year from now. The true things that Billy Meyer case were the photos and the fact that he was taken for a ride, taken into the future, taken back in the past, all that stuff is true. The rest of the gobbledygook is not.
0: I wanted to ask you about that because I just interviewed Michael Horn, who's his spokesperson, and he talked about a lot of things, but the one thing where I thought was disinformation was the global warming thing. That's where I went south. (laughs) Talk about Warner Von Braun. Do you know much about him?
1: Uh, As a matter of fact, I was his scuba diver partner down in the Bahamas one day. And I didn't know enough about him when I was a partner to ask him anything. I was so in awe that that he and I had got paired up. But, you know, I know just about what everybody else knew about him is that he came over under Project Paperclip and he was ready to launch a satellite when the Russians allegedly beat us with Sputnik because we were ahead of the Russians at that time. And uh, they wouldn't let him do it. They wanted the Navy to have that symbolic first simulated satellite with the Vanguard missile, which was a total failure. And we let the Russians go ahead and launch Sputnik, and then there was something else. And then the Yuri Gagarin thing was a, a totally fake. Yuri never went to space. He was dropped in a parachute near one of the capsules, that had been dropped out of an airplane. And he has been accredited with being one of the first men in space. But the fact is, he never went into space at all.
0: It's amazing to hear all of this. Seriously. It's amazing stuff. I was listening to an interview you did with Project Camelot, where in one part of it, you shared a bit about, you had like an AIDS briefing. And you talked about the protein coat is on the virus itself. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah. Bob was given a briefing up at the test site on how they made AIDS and what they made it for. And the doctor's name was Armdarnit. And he felt that they had real respect for this guy because when he was reading the book, wherever they mentioned his name, it was in raised lettering. other was embossed. And it told about how it would work as it was a protein covering of the virus that would not let the T cells go in and uh, protect the T4 cells, go in and protect the body. What it said was the cure was trichothanthus keralali, which is a Chinese cucumber, and mix it with some other chemical. I forget what it was. You could inject it into a person, and even if he had a red cell count of 25 or lower, that within a week of these injections, he would be completely and totally cured and never be affected again by AIDS.
0: God. I knew it was developed here. I just knew it. I had such a strong sense that it was developed. It didn't just evolve.
1: Yeah, no, it was invented by the Navy, and it was to reduce the population now apparently they didn't go ahead with the program because the papers that bob read three quarters of the world was supposed to be gone by you know the early 90s and of course we know that didn't happen so
0: well they definitely dropped it in africa they dropped it in certain subsections of populations they didn't drop it into the white population as much as they did the gay population and the afro-american populations
1: Yeah, I don't think it's dropping it.
0: I think it's inoculation. Do you get inoculations by any chance? No, I don't need them. Most people don't need them. Is there anything you'd like to say about your concerns for life today?
1: I'd just like to say that I live by a code that is integrity without envy, greed, or hate, and total love for my family. If more people would settle down and realize that it doesn't matter who they elect, it doesn't matter who they vote for, it doesn't matter which organization they join, they're only responsible for themselves. And spend as much time as you can with your wife and your children to be part of the better part. You're not gonna help anybody by worrying about the starving children in Africa Or the war in Iraq, or the coming war in Iran, or so many people are on the internet saying, We got to do this, we got to do that, we got to get Ron Paul in, he'll do something. Nobody's going to do anything. No elected official is going to do anything. Obama had a lot of good ideas, but. You know, the first day he was in office, he was visited by three or four men who told him exactly how it was going to work and exactly what he was going to do. The presidents get their briefing, and they're nothing more than a figurehead. They're not allowed to do anything they want. They just have to go ahead with the program. And they're given several demonstrations of what's going to happen to them if they don't. It's going to go along the way it's planned, and life is written. The story of life is already written. It's already going to happen just like it's going to happen. There is a day that you're going to die. You don't die by accident. You die on the day you're supposed to die. So the best thing to do is live with integrity and without envy or greed, and to spend as much time as you can with your family, expressing your love to your family. And that doesn't mean a love you, hon, as you run out the door. It means taking your wife or your girlfriend or your children or whoever and looking into their eyes and telling them how much you love them and why you love them and that kind of thing.
0: Do you think that the European Organization for Nuclear Research, CERN, should be permitted to continue and or are they of concern in terms of what they're dabbling in?
1: The ETs shut the Hadron Collider down because it was going to cause some problems, and they don't need those problems. So they just gave them the word, let's turn it off and we'll do something else. We'll do this some other time.
0: You really think that's what shut it down?
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: It was going to cause some problems, and I don't know what the problems were, but... Creating a wormhole that would swallow the earth? (laughs) (laughs) I saw something on YouTube, and I laughed so hard. (laughs) There was some type of an animation with Julie Andrews, the hills are alive, and then they shut down her voice. (laughs) (laughs) I laughed so hard. I thought that was frightening, what they were doing. Frightening.
1: It was uh, pretty dangerous.
0: You were in a plane crash.
1: Uh, yeah, two plenty rushes.
0: Can you talk a little bit about them?
1: Sure. One was when I was 17 or 18 years old in Switzerland. I was doing some aromatics, illegal aerobatics, over a boarding school that I had attended for several years. And I misjudged my altitude in doing a spin. And I actually spun right in, which means that I hit at an altitude or an attitude of 45 degrees, banged myself up pretty bad, broke both ankles, both feet, both legs in three places, my jaw in two places, lost all my teeth, had a concussion, broke my nose, broke my jaw, was in pretty bad shape. As a matter of fact, only a couple years ago did I start to remember something that happened when I was going to the hospital in this ambulance, and I remember being above my body and looking down at me, there was somebody else there. and I said, I don't think I'm going to make it. And I said, Oh, why not? You've got plenty of flying left back in you. I said, No, I'm not getting enough air. I am sure I'm not going to make it. But I shortly we got to the shore. And I got some supplemental oxygen and pulled through, but it did bang me up. It was about six months before I could fly again. And throughout my career of 40 years, it hasn't bothered me except that I have a noticeable limp because both feet were really torn apart. And this happened over in Geneva, Switzerland, and in those days... 1961 is when it happened, they didn't have anything like reconstructive surgery or anything like that. All they did was cast the wound. So there was nothing they could do. And right now it's a complete mess and causes me pain 24 hours a day. But it's just something, it's just a challenge that I have to meet with integrity and without envy, hate or greed and then there was another wreck I was in. It was in a helicopter. I was taking instruction on learning how to fly a Brantley B2. We were happened to be taking off in the dead man zone, and the dead man zone is when you're taking off and you have no airspeed forward, and you're trying to get high enough being held up by just the blades. And if you lose your engine then, you don't have enough inertia on the blades for them to keep turning around until you get down and can control your rated descent. And that's what happened to us. We got up about three or 400 feet, and then what happened, went immediately into uh, auto-rotation, but it wasn't quick enough, so.
0: Did you think you were gonna die then?
1: No, it was just we weren't going that fast. However, the instructor did say, we were dead. <laughs> but I didn't believe him. And we got through with it. You know, we crawled out by ourselves and there was no
0: big deal. I'm sure it didn't help your already existing physical ailments that are hurting you, though.
1: Yeah, I'm sure my feet were damaged beyond all belief. But my career of 40 years as an airline pilot, I made it through because I didn't give it much thought. And I loved to fly so much and all I'd have to do is get up the stairs that go up to the cockpit. I'd take my boots off and put on some comfortable shoes and fly like that, and then when it was time to get out, put my regular flying boots on and leave the airplane like that. These days, I can work just about maybe 15 or 20 minutes standing up, and that's about it. Other than that, it does hurt quite a bit.
0: You shared something in one of the interviews about when something becomes classified, it actually draws attention to it. There's a paradox that when something becomes classified, it can draw attention to it so that some things are not immediately classified or something like that. Do you remember saying something about that?
1: No, but it sounds correct. One of the ways that they have remedied that is using old names for new projects. For instance, there's a super secret base in the middle of the test site, halfway between the Tonopah Test Range and Groom Lake called Sandia, and it's huge. And it's got two runways, a huge hangar, and then into the mountains south of it, it's got huge underground offices And it's got five barracks that are a mile deep, and each one can hold 15,000 troops. And they named it Sandia. Because there's so many people that know about Sandia Corporation and Sandia Mountain, and so they did a stroke of genius was naming Sandia because everybody's heard of that before. It's only when they hear a new name that people start trying to find out the new project.
0: do you think that we have had the ability in the secret Space Agency or in maybe DARPA to? carry out time
1: travel? Time travel is possible. Whether we've done it or not, I don't know. If we did do it, we did it with the help of the ETs. Now, we work with several species of ETs up at Groom Lake. As a matter of fact, one has their own administration building. They gave us a time machine, and the name of it is Looking Glass. And you can look at this thing and you can look back in time and forward in time. I don't know how it works. I never saw it. I never heard it described, except the fact that it is there.
0: Your relationship with Bob Lazar has been a profound relationship. And I've heard you talk on several interviews about his work, his findings, and I guess up till a few years ago, what he was doing. Is there anything you'd like to share with this audience who may not know about Bob Lazar?
1: Well, more and more people are believing what Bob said because his story has never changed, and more and more things happen that back up what he said. Now, the guys that come out to knock him, like Ed Fouché and uh, the deacon from Livermore, you know, they start bad mouthing Bob, and also this guy, Stan Friedman, because his records don't match up. That's the last thing you want to check because it's so easy for the ETs to change records.
0: When you say records, what are you talking about?
1: Uh, Employee records, performance reports.
0: Wouldn't that be something that our government can do too?
1: Yeah, but if it has to be done on a rapid base, some guys can have done so much and their file, you know, reached to the ceiling and they've got to go through that and change. Everything to restate the way they want people to remember him. Now, as far as uh, Bob Lazar's records, they erased his total existence. They erased his college education, both his attendance to Caltech and to uh, MIT. They have magical ways to do this, and they're helped by the ETs to do this. And the specific reason is because they don't want people going around telling secrets. And they do tell secrets. They want to have a way instantly to pull the plug and make him look like an idiot.
0: Wow, that's really profound. (laughs) A person could be doing something their whole life, and then all of a sudden, poof, they never were doing that. They're not that person. They never had that entire life. Yeah. That sounds pretty heavy-handed. Do you trust these ETs?
1: It's not a question of trusting them. Because there are so many ETs, first of all, you have to understand that there was no Big Bang. The universe is infinite. It goes on forever, and it has been going on forever, and there is no beginning and there's no end. There's billions and billions of different species of ETs. There's a billion times a billion Earths, almost identical to ours, but some are a little bit different more advanced. Technology-wise, some of them are a little bit less. They can do just about anything they want. So whatever they want to do, they can do technology-wise.
0: The Big Bang really did seem as though it was part of a mythology to me. Now that we know about the infinite universe and the field theory it's obvious that it didn't just start at one point. It has never not been. It's so interesting, the unified field theory. I think it would be hard for people to fathom when you say billion times a billion. It sounds exaggerated, but you literally mean it.
1: Right. There's a billion times a billion Earth similar or identical to ours, and some are more advanced, some are less advanced. But when you talk about good ETs and bad ETs, there's just as many good ones as there are bad ones. Our government happens to be allied with bad ones at this time. But hopefully it'll work out eventually and we'll be allied with good ones. But we made an agreement with some bad guys and what we got was a technology which we wanted for bombs to kill people.
0: How do you say what you're saying with the level of confidence? Did someone tell you this?
1: Yeah. I talked to Lou Balden, who's known as Sleeper, on the website. They have to go into his background. He was with the Army for five or ten years, and he went on trips all over the solar system and beyond. He has a lot of information. And then you listen very carefully to other people, which which add to information. And I have a few friends that work in the scientific community, and they let information slip just a little bit at a time.
0: So it's really the putting together of the people that are either in your inner circle or people that you're paying attention to. Now, I know that there was a big conflict on ATS, and there was all this trouble that they gave you. Was it connected to the Lou Baldwin write-ups, or was it completely separate from that?
1: No, I don't think it had anything to do with it. I'm still listed there. I can go back. I just don't want to because I feel that ATS is just a CIA vacuum cleaner, and what they're there is to find out what the public knows So that they can take steps to handle or disagree with or do whatever they want to with the public. It's just like a vacuum cleaner. Everybody puts in their two cents worth and, oh, I heard about this. I heard about what's the truth. They can inject a little disinformation there and a, a little disinformation there to work it out. Got it.
0: The air is being sprayed by something. By some group, they are spraying the air all over, not only the country, but the world. Do you know anything about why that's being done? Aerosol spraying or chemtrails?
1: Yeah, the chemtrails work with HARP, And it's my understanding that you know, when they turn on HARP, they can use it to change the weather. They can make tornadoes. They can make tsunamis. They can make fires. They can do all kinds of stuff. But if they spray a layer of the chemtrails at say 30,000 feet and then turn on the chemtrails in that area, you can't see anything that is between that layer. So if they were going to fly any secret airplanes, they would uh, first run a uh, chemtrail and then turn on the uh, harp and then launch the airplane, and then the airplane can go wherever it wants to, and you can't see
0: it. I was under the impression that harp was a microwave technology. That could very well
1: be part of it.
0: Interesting. I wanted to ask you about that because I'm in Los Angeles, and I see it more and more and more, and it's so disturbing. And there are people that have been checking the air quality of what is happening, what's coming to the ground, what are people breathing in with these chemicals. And these nanoparticles, it's very disturbing.
1: How does that work?
0: Apparently, the aerosol has barium and aluminum. And I can't remember the third chemical. I'm doing a piece on it next week.
1: I'll be interested to read it.
0: It's with Edward Griffin. Did a documentary on the aerosol spraying. Different people have written about it. But every time there's a spring, there's a huge influx of respiratory problems with people getting sick, you know, and of course, it weakens your immunity. So that's why I was just wondering if you were familiar with it, because it's very disconcerting. It's very direct. It's very disconcerting. And what's being sprayed into the air is toxic for us. So I just wondered.
1: Uh, On uh, Lou Baldwin's extraterrestrial speak or something like that, I read his question and answers every day, and there's always kind of real interesting information, and you can count on it being, at least I can count on it, as being 100% accurate.
0: Do you think he ever does interviews?
1: He doesn't like to do interviews. You can email him through his website, but he doesn't like to do interviews. You never can tell what he's going to do, though.
0: Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show and making things clearer to us and answering my questions about 9-11 that were still remaining. I look forward to talking with you again. Thank you so much, John.
1: Okay. Thank you.